Hi guys, welcome to this special bonus episode of the Smurfit Speaker Series. Today we had the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Michael Smurfit, KBE. We discussed the COVID situation in Monaco, his business journey from humble beginnings to building one of the largest packaging companies in the world, and his advice for graduates today. We got some great feedback from the live event as Dr. Smurfit drops more than one or two pearls of wisdom along the way. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Dr. Smurfit, we might kick off um, by addressing the elephant in the room, which would be COVID. Uh, I'm wondering what the situation is like in Monaco at the moment and, and how you're dealing with it yourself. Well, it's a, a seven o'clock curfew. Uh, we're now in the second, third month of it. Uh, I was in touch with the uh, Serene Highness today and it looks like another few weeks to go. Uh, they're going ahead with the Grand Prix, which is uh, going to be great news, but there's going to be no spectators, I'm afraid. Not that you see very much in a Grand Prix, which is past you just like quicker than fast, like of the eye. Um, and it's, 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 it's very bad news that we're still in lockdown situation because uh, you can't dine with anybody at seven o'clock in the evening. Uh, and I haven't been able to see my 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 uh, friends down here uh, for oh, nearly two months now, and it's a bit of a bore, I must say. It's particularly as I'm in the twilight of my life, to have to spend these days and weeks uh, in in this particular situation is not something which I'm very happy about. Um, likewise, likewise, we're in lockdown in Ireland too, so I uh, can definitely sympathise with your situation. Uh, just in on, on your thoughts on, on the world lockdown in general and how governments around the world are dealing with it and have, han how, have handled it so far, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's an enormous uh, change for everybody. Uh, this was never anticipated except by people like Bill Gates, who four, four years ago did mention that he thought something like this would happen and has happened. Uh, we're unfortunate in one way and we're fortunate in another. What do I mean by that? I mean, this pandemic could be uh, a pandemic that could kill everybody. If you got it, you could be dead from it. Uh, lucky enough, it's not that bad. But it is bad for people, particularly uh, people with uh, uh, problems, people who've got bad health issues like uh, diabetes and, uh, and older people like myself. We're very vulnerable because our immune system is not that great. I've had vaccinations now done. Monday will be my third week from my last vaccination, which says I should be somewhat immune. How much I don't know with the various mutations that are taking place. How governments have handled it, I think very haphazardly. I mean, Italy is a mess next to us. France has not done very well. Spain's not done very well. Monaco has done extremely well. I must say they've handled it very well. I think the entire population should be vaccinated. That's the resident population by the end of May, which would be some achievement. We're probably the first little country in the world to do that. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, great to hear. Great to hear you're in safe hands. Um, what opportunities do you see potentially arising from COVID in general? You know, obviously a lot of businesses are struggling, but surely this means there's opportunities for others to maybe take them over or, or for new innovation around the world. Very few. Uh, it, it does. It does amplify the home entertainment issue very much. Uh, people need entertainment. They need some uh, thing to do. Uh, without the, 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 the Wi-Fi, I, I don't know how people would have coped, particularly uh, being of a family with two young children, maybe in a single bedroom or a two-bedroom apartment locked up. 
very tough, very difficult uh, for them to survive without some form of entertainment. Uh, so I think to some extent, I've been in that business uh, and I'm involved with uh, the GAN company, uh, which is run by my nephew, uh, Dermot Smurfit Jr. And that's done very well in the, in the, in the, uh, uh, in the period due to uh, the COVID. But it, it's not something I take great pleasure in and saying, oh, business is good because of the COVID. I don't really like to think like that. I think this, I'd like to see this behind us and move on and get back to a normal life that we can actually enjoy each other's company again. Definitely, definitely. Uh, but, but with regard to the Smurfit business, I know you're not involved in the day-to-day -day operations anymore. It's currently being run by your son, Tony, but surely with the growth in, in e-commerce and online shopping, it must have a great effect on demand for boxes and packaging in general. Yes, it's done very well. Growth has been exceptional because of that. But again, it's not, it's not the sort of business I would like to say is sustainable uh, because this pandemic will go, it will pass over. We look back in it in a few years now and say, what was that all about? But at the moment when you're going through it, it doesn't like, it's not like that. It's like being in a storm on a ship. When you're in the storm, you don't see the end of it. It's only when you look back on it, you say, oh, that was pretty horrific, wasn't it? Uh, uh, so I don't uh, think that uh, you can build a sustainable business based upon an artificial uh, jump in demand, that would be uh, a bit stupid to do, in my opinion. Fair, fair enough, fair enough. And, and could you just, just for some of, the, some of the listeners today, could you give us a bit of the background as to how the business actually started? Just from reading your book, I believe the story involves uh, uh, your grandmother and a Catholic priest. Is that accurate? Yes, uh, Father Davy Mantram, a famous uh, priest at that time. He converted my father from Protestantism to Catholicism. And uh, my dad was a very strict uh, uh, bringer up of children. He was a very tough, tough guy. I uh, said in my, my book, I didn't love my father till my 30s. Uh, but I appreciated what he did for me all my life. And uh, uh, having just lost my brother, Alan, who was closest to me uh, in life uh, last September at 77, uh, I've sort of watched the... Uh, uh, my friends pop around me and uh, uh, it's not been a great period for me to be honest Fair, fair enough and, and you joined the business um, as a teenager coming out of secondary school H had you any other ambitions when you were younger or, or was it all, all about going into the business? I wanted to be a, a golfer and a cricketer I went to MCC in Lords where Colin Cowdery taught me his name is Colin Lowdery uh, I thought it could, could be a good cricketer. Uh, wanted to join Marion uh, uh, at 16 and play cricket for them for a year or two. Uh, I was a pretty good golfer back in the day, but um, uh, all those ambitions quickly turned to nothing when you, in my early 20s I got TB. And from there, after that, uh, went to uh, work for my dad. Well, I was working for my dad since I was 16, but uh, went got serious about work. Uh, and having learned about takeovers in hospital when I was in Piedmont, uh, when I took over the business, decided what I wanted to do with it. And, and you started your, your succession of acquisitions in, in 1967, I believe. And I'm just wondering how you decided acquisitions was the best way to expand your business as opposed to potentially growing it organically through the purchase of new machinery or expanding the plants you had. Well, 
the one thing I can tell you, you, you cannot impart on somebody else intuition. You can impart knowledge, you can impart wisdom and so on, but you can't impart uh, uh, intuition. And I had that sense of business that I don't know where I got it from. I don't know how long, how I kept it. Uh, uh, but I haven't been able to pass it to my brothers or sisters or anybody. It's just something I had or have. Uh, somebody once called it, you could see around corners when nobody could see anywhere. I don't think I could see around corners, but the results prove that maybe I did be able to see a little bit further than most other people. Or I saw opportunity where others saw problems. Uh, but that's uh, what makes the difference between a successful entrepreneur and an unsuccessful entrepreneur. The willingness to take risk, the willingness to do things, to try things. And if you fail, just pick yourself up and try again. And if you fail again, pick yourself up again and keep doing it until you get it right. Definitely, definitely. And following your first kind of acquisitions in, in 1967, you had about five or six smaller acquisitions over the next two years. And then you acquired the Healy Group, which was at the time it was four times your size. So can you just take us through what the thought process and mindset might have been for that specific deal? Because it seems to me on the outside looking in, like a very aggressive mindset, nearly a, a David versus Goliath approach to uh, to the whole thing. Yeah, well, uh, I gambled the business. I mean, that was effectively a throw of the dice. I was risking the entire Jefferson, Smurfett and Sons as it was then uh, to acquire Healy's. Uh, I didn't realize how good Healy was going to turn out to be. I thought it would be okay. But every time we kicked a rock in there, we found a gold nugget. And it wasn't a gold nugget, it was a diamond. It was just uh, an incredibly rich company, which was very poorly managed, very poorly uh, uh, developed. And it was like being in a candy shop when you couldn't get enough sweets, stuff into yourself. I, I couldn't get enough hours in the day to go around to all the various different units there were, that we were in uh, insurance, we were in uh, golf clubs, selling Wilson golf clubs, we were in making Bush television sets, we were in uh, uh, banking, we were in finance, uh, we were in printing, we were in uh, uh, carton making for, car for Irish carton printers, we in all sorts of businesses, uh, which they didn't come together in the Healy Group, but under the Smurfit Group it became the Smurfit Group. Uh, and that was the, the launch pin for me to go and uh, travel into the UK and, and, and eventually uh, America and Europe and uh, I was setting sail, if you will. And, and did, that, did that kind of uh, acquisition maybe give you the confidence to go forward and maybe set the game plan for targeting these bigger fish in the UK and America? Was that the, was that the essence of uh, the beginning? I realized I could run any business anywhere once I had Healy's under my belt. It gave me the confidence to, 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 to move forward. Uh, and we did it very rapidly, as you know. Definitely, definitely. And I'd be interested to hear your, your thoughts on, on risk-taking and your approach to it. Like, is, do you feel there's, there's uh, like you obviously gambled the business, like you were saying, but do you feel there's any real progress to, me, to be made in the, in the business world without taking such risk? There's no such thing as success without risk. There's no such thing that doesn't exist. You have to take risk. I gambled the company two or three times in my life. That was enough. Uh, thereafter, I was able to manage to, to take risk, but I get, was only gambling 25% of the company or 30% maximum. So I wasn't putting the company at risk, but I, for two or three times in my career, I did put the company at risk. In other words, 
If we got it wrong, we were toast. Uh, and those were very shaky times, uh, but we got it right, thank God. And when growing so quickly, like you said, how did you ensure that you continued to produce a world-class product and that the quality didn't drop? Well, we set out always to, in life, I wanted to be the best, not the biggest. In, in becoming the best, we became the biggest. I think in the industry today, uh, Smurfit Kappa Group, as it's now called, is probably the most admired company in our industry. Admired for its innovativeness, for its culture, for its esprit de corps, for its uniqueness, and for all the things it does so, so, so well. Uh, and that came from the founder of our business, uh, Jefferson Smurfit Sr. The core values that we had of integrity and what have you, always uh, saw the company through the, the bad times. And there were bad times. We had diff difficult times. Uh, it wasn't always uh, uh, honey and roses. It was sometimes uh, sackcloth and ashes. But we got through those particular difficult times and came through stronger and better at the end of it. But uh, what saw us through was our culture and our uh, integrity. That was the thing that saw the company survive uh, the, the hard times that we went through. Definitely, definitely. And you seem to double the business in size maybe every three to four years. And I just wonder, was there any a time, any, any time where you thought that it was big enough or was, was, the, gro was the growth all about momentum and, and trying to, once you got to that stage, trying to take over the world? No, we, never, we didn't try to take over the world. Things came to us, uh, for example, uh, uh, when we... Uh, I was at a board meeting in Telecom. I got a call from Sir James Goldsmith who said he was taking over Diamond International and he wanted to sell me some units in Diamond International. So I went over, saw them, loved them, and bought them. Bought them at a very low price because I was the only buyer and I'd cash it to give him. He wanted to be paid in 30 days and I had the money with him in 10 days. It was like, again, being in a candy shop. That was one thing that happened to us. Another thing that happened to us was when I was in America, in, in Los Angeles, I got a call from uh, Morgan Stanley, a guy called Don Brennan, who said, would you like to buy Container Corporation of America? We can, we can get you the money. And it's for sale. Well, they came to me. I didn't go to them. So it was things that came into my, my, my lap uh, sometimes that, that uh, made us grow. Uh, and we took these companies over and did a brilliant job with them and made a lot of money for the company, which got its base of it uh, is still uh, Smurfit Kappa today. Definitely. And you speak about people coming to you with different, uh, with different offers or different deals. And I read that you routinely attended up to 200 business dinners a year. But I'd be interested to know, how did you start to build your network in the early days of your career? And maybe did you reach out to anyone who you admired for mentorship or advice? Well, I admired a lot of people. I admired Tony O'Reilly, for example, uh, what he was doing. Uh, the Young Turks, Dermot Desmond was uh, doing his thing. He's the one that got me involved in the business school to begin with. Uh, I admired Lawrence Crowley, your late chairman, who just passed away, I believe, last year. Uh, sadly, great friend of mine, lovely man. And a great chairman, by the way, of the business school, first chairman of the business school, outstanding uh, person. Uh, so, uh, but uh, frankly, I was on my own because I, I, was, I was the only one on the ship going to America. 
So all America's coming to Europe. Is, there was no one getting on the ship going back to America to buy American companies and what have you, or even going to Europe in, in my day. So in that way, I was the first uh, uh, and trailblazed. And I think other companies that followed me actually used the same lawyers and the same bankers that I used in America because they knew the Irish story and so on and so forth. Uh, I'm very, very proud of that. Brilliant. And how would you describe, you know, maybe learning from some of these people who you, you might have uh, associated with, um, how would you describe your own leadership style, leadership style and what, what do you think might make a good leader uh, in today's world? Be prepared to listen. As my father used to tell me, you got two ears, you got two eyes, you got two noses, you got one mouth, keep your mouth shut, the rest open. <laughs> Very good advice. Very good advice. And, uh, and we might rewind back a bit. So listen more than you talk. <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant. We might, we might just take it back a little bit to when you were um, taking over some of, some of these companies and you regularly use the phrase to smurfatize um, when you're taking over these businesses and transforming them into the smurfit way of business. Could you elaborate a little bit on what it means to, to smurfatize a business? Well, the first thing we would do is, 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 try to get them to understand our culture. I was Michael to everybody in the company. Uh, I was Michael Smurfett, there was no Mr. This. I grew up in the day of hard hats where people walked around factories with hats on and gloves and talked down to workers. That was never our style. I would go up to a worker on a machine and find out how long he'd been working for the company, how long, what he did and so on and so forth and talk to him. They were the people that were making the money for me. It wasn't the people sitting in the offices or me. It was the people who were running the machines. So you had to install a culture of not them and us, only us. Somebody said, but they're workers. I said, we're all workers. Everybody's a worker. There's no such thing as non-workers. Maybe salaries and different uh, levels of responsibility, but we're all part of the same team. We're all part of the cog, uh, make up the, the, the cogs in a, in a, in a machine. Uh, so it was, it was, it was to get that culture over from, uh, from being very open, honest, straightforward, involving your people in the decision making you are doing. Nothing excites a factory more than the fact that they're getting a new machine next year. No, nothing. You tell the people that the machine's coming in next year, they love it because they know that's the future. That future is more secure when they see that happening. And do you think that feeds into, I know that the Smurfit Group, even up until recently, has won many awards for being such a great place to work. You, like, how did you manage to, to maintain such high staff morale um, across the board and, and have such high staff retention? Does it feed into what you've just said? Well, I, I, I've given loyalty to everybody uh, and honesty, and you get it back in spades. If you give it to people, people will, will, will respond to you. They will be very happy to be part of, of, of your life. Uh, and that's why people don't leave Smurfits. Very few, we've lost very few executives over the history of our company. Uh, we rewarded very well because we had great results and we could afford to. Uh, most of my senior people became multimillionaires through stock options and buying shares and so on and so forth. Uh, so the culture was a very successful one as well. Um, and that was part of the elan, if you will, that, uh, uh, that we have in Smurfit. Definitely. And do you think this kind of smurfatization ethos can be replicated across every industry potentially, or is it specific to the manufacturing or packaging um, space? I don't know. 
but I, I, I think that you can certainly have an open culture in any factory. Uh, not them and us, you can certainly have an open uh, mind. Uh, one of the great things about my particular uh, situation was I was very fortunate to be brought up by my father who taught me from 16 uh, how to make a box. I knew everything about a corrugated box. There was to be known about a corrugated box. I knew everything about a paper mill that was everything about how to make paper. So from a very young age, I learned the business from the ground up. Nobody could fool me in the business. So I went into some place and they tried to BS me. They, got, they didn't stand, stay, stay around very long because I was, this is the once, if they did it once, they would get away with it. But if they did it twice, it wouldn't be working for me. Uh, I didn't suffer food gladly and I didn't have time to. I was such a busy individual. I was working 18, 20 hours a day and didn't feel it. Didn't feel I need to sleep. Definitely, definitely. And, and just moving on, maybe from your business career, um, you, you established the K Club and, and I'm just, you sold it previously um, during the year. Was it emotional um, getting rid of the K Club or, or was it strictly a business decision? Of course it was emotional. I mean, you don't have a baby like that, bring it up and, and nurture it and, and develop it and from the ground roots up uh, and then let it go easily without uh, 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 some regrets. Uh, but once I made the decision to, to divest of it and leave it into other people's hands, it wasn't made because of the COVID uh, issue. Was just, the decision was made a long time before that was even on the horizon. Uh, once I made up the decision, it was do it and move on. I don't look back with any regret one way or the other. Definitely. And, and probably the defining moment or the, the, the most uh, glory moment of the K-Club's um, lifespan was, was hosting the Ryder Cup for Ireland in 2006. W would you be able to give us a bit of a, an idea as how you managed to secure the Ryder Cup for Ireland in 2006? Well, I promised the PGA that I would sponsor the Smurfit European Open for another 15 years, uh, which at three or four million a year was a lot of money back in, the, in those days. It cost much more just to, to get the Ryder Cup today. It cost uh, between two and three times what I paid for it. Um, and probably whoever couldn't do it today. But as I was going to do the uh, European Open in any case, it didn't seem like a no-brainer to me. And we got it because of that particular reason. Brilliant. And, and the Ryder Cup has been announced um, for Adair Manor in, in 2026. So I'm just wondering, have you been down to inspect and how does it, how does it fare out in comparison to the K-Club? Great. It's great news for Ireland. I, I said... I said before the Ryder Cup that it would never happen again in my lifetime, and here it is happening. It's, it's fantastic news, and well done to J.P. McManus for uh, doing such a sterling job in getting it and making the, the golf course so unique. Adair will have a uh, will do a great job, and I'm looking forward to being his guest when it comes. I think it's going to be postponed for a year, if not two years, because the Ryder Cup without people wouldn't be the Ryder Cup. I would not recommend that they go to Whistling Straits. Uh, under any circumstances, unless they have uh, a population, because the Ryder Cup is all about the uh, about the crowds. It's about the U.S. against America, Europe. It's 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 a, a national thing. It requires people, not like an ordinary golf tournament. You can get away with, but you can't get away with that the Ryder Cup. So I would suspect it might be postponed for another year. Maybe so. Maybe so. Um, In which case, by the time, by the time it comes to it, there. Mm -hmm. 
for sure, for sure. And uh, I'm, I'm aware that you've made um, many philanthropic uh, acts over the years, but just curious as to what spurred your, you to support the creation of the International Business School way back in, in 1991. Well, it happened totally by accident. I was in my office one day when I got a call from Dermot Desmond. He wanted to come and see me, and he just told me being made chairman of the UCD uh, uh, foundation that was raising money for a, a new business school and would I agree to invest in it. <coughs> me. The more I looked into it, the more I liked it. And I decided to put up the main money. I never asked them or the school ever to put my name over the door. That was something that happened to me when I was away in America and came back and found it had been done. And they said, no, no, we need that because we need to raise more money. I very remember Paddy Masterson, who was then the president of UCD, uh, Lawrence Crowley and myself and Dermot uh, Desmond and a couple of other people sitting around a table in Klonski, which is the head office of Smurfit, trying to figure out where we're going to get 250 people to make it so it could break even. That's how it was back in those days. And we couldn't figure it out. I'd have my kids coming up, so I have six or five and... So that's what we were thinking. To see it today is such a marvelous success story is absolutely mind-boggling in my view. And that's because of the great deans we've had and the great uh, board of the, of the company who've done us a sterling job. And I'm very proud of it. Very, very proud of it indeed. Definitely, definitely. And speaking to predominantly soon-to-be graduates, um, I know you obviously made your name in boxes and packaging with the Smurfer Group, but if you were starting out today would you still focus on packaging or would you be drawn to different industries, maybe such as tech? Well, remember this, I know the business backwards, so that's no, no brainer. I would probably do it again, but I have made far more money outside of Smurfits than I made in Smurfits to investing in, 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 in different people, different companies over the years, particularly young people. Uh, I've done extraordinarily well uh, in, in that sense. Uh, for example, I was the major shareholder in GAN, which went public in America uh, uh, this year, uh, last year, and uh, share price just took off. Uh, I've done, done, made a lot of money in a lot of different things. Definitely. Yeah. Would you follow that up with any advice you might have for young entrepreneurs who are setting out on their journey today? Yeah, be prepared to, to take a risk. Don't be, a, don't be ashamed of failing. I mean, don't be ashamed to fail. Everybody fails. Uh, we all have our down times and, and uh, you should shrug it off and put it down to experience. The main thing I can stand is only making the same mistake twice. Uh, so I tell my kids, uh, you know, make, make your own mistakes, but don't make the mistakes I've made. <laughs> and of course, they don't listen to you, do they? <laughs> I don't know. I can't, can't comment on that one. Uh, but, but just in terms, of, in terms of hard work, I know obviously as an entrepreneur, you know, hard work is, is nearly a culture you've got to instill in yourself. But you spoke previously about working these 18-hour, 20-hour days. Do you think it would have been possible to have had the success you've had uh, in hindsight and, and not have worked as hard as you did? No. no, no question I couldn't have. And I couldn't have done it without the use of a plane. I had a, the first private jet ever in Europe. And then I had the first... Uh, uh, big jet ever in Europe, the first Gulfstream three and a four and eventually a five. Uh, and I think nothing of going nonstop from Nice to Beijing 
having a dinner in Beijing, a couple of meetings with some people in Hong Kong, and coming back the next day, and two days later going to Argentina, another 16-hour trip, and spending a couple of days in Argentina and coming back. And then maybe the following week going to America. I was doing 900 hours a year in a jet uh, for two or three years in a row, which is nearly one-seventh of your life stuck in a plane. But in my plane, I had my clothes, I had uh, uh, different shoes, I had uh, different uh, um, toiletries, I had a full staff with me, and uh, it, was, it was like a flying office. I couldn't have done it, I couldn't have done it uh, uh, and given the Espeda core, which I wanted to do the factories. That's what the money is made. The money is not made in the office, I keep telling people. Money is made visiting factories. Definitely, definitely. And you spoke there previously about um, maybe the relationship with, with children or children listening to you. Your business relationship started out as a, a father and son re- relationship, I suppose. And I'm just wondering how, how there's probably a lot of businesses in Ireland which have a similar setup, particularly in the SME space with the parent and child um, coordinating on proceedings. How did you find that relationship um, growing up and how do you think it might prosper? Or how do you think other people might overcome that relationship uh, in a business sense? Well, you, you, you've got a family business. I hope you go into it and I hope you make and build it up into something very significant. You can branch out from uh, paper bags into paper sacks, for example, cement sacks and so on and so forth. Many things you can do. Uh, you don't have to be a bit shy about trying it. Uh, it's a, it's a leg up to start with. You know, you've already got one leg in the air. And I'm sure the founders of the business, your parents, or I don't know who founded it, uh, had their struggles early on at, uh, as they got off the ground. But things have gone right for them because our plastics are out and paper is in. So, you know, that's what you <laughs> that's call it. That's for sure. It seems and, to be going And up. you need, need luck in business. You do need luck. You do need luck. Definitely, definitely. And uh, we're, we're just coming up to, um, sorry, I'm just unstable, but we're just coming up to um, the end of the, of the kind of formal aspect of the conversation. Just a couple more questions. So if anyone has any questions they'd like to put into the, the Q&A chat box, feel free to do so now. Um, but just a couple more before we, before we finish up. Um, do, you, do you have any book recommendations, um, Dr. Smurfit, which you'd recommend for uh, young, young graduates to, to read today? Books, books, books. Yeah, yeah. Business or otherwise. Business or otherwise. Well, I'm a great reader of of real life stories about uh, Tiny Roland, uh, by Tom Bauer, for example, about Robert Maxwell, other big gangsters in England, uh, people uh, who lacked integrity. And uh, I always think it's a great lesson to read these stories because it may, reminds you to keep yourself on the straight and narrow, which is. The temptations are always there sometimes to, to cut corners, but I never did, thank God. Um, never tempted to do either. Um, so it would be books like that that I would read. And also the late Jim, Jim Slater, I ran his book, read his books. That's where I got the idea for, take, for takeovers. He ran a company called Slater Walker. And I learned how he used to buy into companies first and then take a controlling position take out the management and redo the business. He was, he was at the beginning of what we'd call today the hedge funds that buy into companies uh, to take over artists. Something like Madison Dearborn when they took over Smurfit. They got rid of the jet and got rid of all the surplus stuff they thought was not needed. Brilliant, brilliant. And one final question before we jump into the Q&A. 
Um, so how would you like to be remembered and, and what do you think your legacy might be? Well, I'd like to be remembered for uh, being an honest man, uh, but above all, being a good father. I've got six wonderful kids. I've got 14 grandchildren. Can't remember all their names. You know, you know they say when you get older, first three things happen to you. First, you don't see so well. The second, you don't hear so well. And the third thing I can never remember. Well, that's one of my problems, trying to remember my 14 grandchildren. But that's the thing I'm most proud of, of course, is having a, a, a built a good family, great family. And then on top of that, being very lucky to build a great business, a successful business. And above all, to be admired by young people like you, for example, that's very important to me that you re respect the name and respect what we've achieved. Uh, because it was a collective effort. It wasn't just me. There was a, I, I had a great team around me, the late Howard Kilroy had gone. And, uh, you know, I was liking life to a chessboard. You've got your main pieces, your mother, your father, your cousins and aunts and uncles. Then you've got your pawns, you're all your friends. I'm down to two pawns. You know, last man standing, probably. Who knows? Uh, having lost my brother, I said, last year, and Lawrence Crowley, there were two of my, my pawns. So uh, it's not too far away from that actually happening, I suppose. But uh, we'll see. I'm hoping to have a few good years. It's not the years you live. It's the way you live your years that counts. Very wise, I think. Very wise. So I want you to, there's, there's loads of questions coming in in the chat box. So um, I'm not sure if we'll be able to get to them all, but I'll start with a few and then, and then we'll wrap up in about 10 minutes or so, if that's okay. Um, so one here is, how do you see... I'm in, no hurry. I'm in no hurry to go anywhere. I'm on lockdown. <laughs> well, if you're enjoying it, we can continue on for another few minutes. A lot of your people got into a lot of trouble to, 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 to uh, uh, link in. And I say to them, thank them very much for uh, taking the time to listen to me. I'm, I'm very appreciative. Brilliant. So I think they reciprocate that, uh, that thought as well. They're, they're, uh, they're floating into the chat box here. So the first one that pops up here is, how do you see the packaging industry meeting higher environmental standards with regard to its raw material and energy needs and then recycling used packaging materials? Well, it's a great industry for that because uh, most of the stuff that we use is recycled uh, and recycled again. I think we get seven times from a box at, uh, before it becomes worthless. So the box could be reused, set, recycled through the process seven times. And maybe it's six now. It's going down it's getting, as it degrades. Uh, and of course, uh, the whole the whole ambition of every company now in the world is to be zero emissions. Uh, and it's a great challenge. Tony and his team have done a great job in bringing the emissions down. Uh, and not of the capital that they invest, sub 600 million a year in capital. I think a big chunk of that is going into just doing that, making sure that the emissions are going down. Definitely, definitely. And, and moving on, uh, we have one uh, asking, what has been the most satisfying moment in your business career? What's the most satisfying moment? Walking into my father's office and telling him he was now the biggest company in Ireland. I was so proud of that moment. Uh, and you could see his chess. We were called Jefferson Smurf and Sons in those days. And that was just after taking over Healy's and, and 
he was so, so proud. And that was the most uh, single, most standout moment of my business career. Brilliant, brilliant, great to hear. Um, the, the business had a couple of fires early on. How devastating were those for the business? Extraordinarily devastating uh, because we hadn't full insurance and uh, we, had, we were rebuilding, we weren't taking the money off the table and going away and having a good life lying in the sun in Mallorca or something. We were rebuilding. So we had to borrow money to rebuild. So there were major setbacks in, in our career, uh, very major setbacks, nearly bust us. Yeah, sounds, sounds devastating. How did you find the best talent early on and how did you make sure they stayed? Well, that was a key question. I mean, uh, Howard Kilroy turned me down when I first approached him to join us. And I was so taken with him. I finally got him to come on board. And one of the great decisions I ever made in my life is a great uh, number two guy. Uh, first class, top class guy. Uh, guy in America, Jim Malloy. Ran Jim, met Jim in Montreux in Switzerland when he was running IP, international paper. who made a bid for Smurfers a couple of years back which fortunately we saw off. Uh, he was a brilliant guy. And they became friends of mine. Uh, dinners, wives, holidays, skiing together, doing things together. Great fun as well as work hard. Brilliant. Um, do, do you think you can teach entrepreneurship? No. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, to what extent has money been a driving force in your desire to succeed? Zero. We're going for never, these are the, the quickfire questions. <laughs> never, never was concerned with money. Didn't know my net worth. Didn't bother about it. Do it a bit more now because I've got nothing else to do. I'm retired, but uh, I didn't. I didn't worry about money most of my life up to my mid sixties. Uh, I just had enough to live on and accumulated. And, didn't didn't follow it. wasn't wasn't a, wasn't a thing with me. Brilliant. And uh, in retrospect, uh, is there any deal that, with hindsight, you wouldn't have done? Oh yes, too many. <laughs> if you don't talk about. It. <laughs> Fair enough. You, and you don't you don't wash your dirty linen in public. <laughs> Very good. Um, we might just wrap it up with this one. So you say it's you say it's not sustainable to build a business based on pandemic times. How do you recommend people build relationships and start out in their careers in business in pandemic times in this new virtual world? I'm afraid it's a world I'm not used to. I, I mean, I've got my good lady here to switch this machine on. I couldn't I couldn't handle it myself. She got difficulty doing it. So I don't know enough about this new world. It's hard enough for me to switch my phone on without uh, trying to text or uh, email or all, all these newfangled worlds. My world that I grew up in was entirely different to what you've grown up in, entirely different. There's no, it's black and white, chalk and cheese. The world has changed so dramatically in the last 15, 20 years. It's, it's, it's quite unbelievable. Is it a better world? I don't know if it is. Uh, it doesn't seem to me to be sometimes, to be honest, uh, but it's your world and it's a, uh, my kid's world and we've got to make the best of it. Uh, all I can advise people is 
as I said before, don't be afraid of failure because you will fail. I mean, nobody succeeds all the time. You're going to fail from time to time. Pick yourself up and get on and move on and do something else or do, do what you failed at better till you get it right. They're very wise words and, and probably apt to finish up there. But I'd just like to thank um, Dr. Smurfit for, for being so generous with his time. And thanks to everybody for, uh, for attending and, and hopefully uh, you enjoyed this evening. Um, but again, uh, my thanks and as well to Mairead for uh, facilitating and all, all the technical aspects as well. And uh, to uh, Anthony Brabazon for his introduction. Um, so thank you all and hopefully you enjoyed and, uh, and we'll speak to you all soon. Everybody stay well. Stay well. That's all that counts. Brilliant. Health, health is what matters. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Dr. Smurfit. Bye all.